Father, we do want to give you glory in the highest. And we want to proclaim your peace on earth and your goodwill to men. That they might have and know the joy of your salvation. We cannot do this without you and we cannot do this without the instruction of your word. So help us this morning. Speak to us this morning. Give us ears to hear, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, who do you worship at Christmas time? No, for real. Who do you truly worship? I heard a Santa out there. Who do you truly worship? Well, the word worship, maybe a definition helps, means to literally assign worth or value to something. Worship isn't fundamentally what we do when we gather on a Sunday morning, though that's part of our worship. It's what we do with our entire lives. And so the question becomes, when we look at our lives and we look at our lives at Christmas time, what do we seem to be assigning value to? What do we seem to be assigning worth to? Looking at our time, our energy, our resources, and where they go during Christmas season? Let me ask again, who would you say you worship? I realize that in some ways, in a gathering like this, a Christian church, everyone assembled to worship God, we pray, that can seem like a silly question. You say, surely we we know who we worship, and our our worship is directed in the right places, and I, I assume that to be largely the case. But forgive me, when we think about the kinds of books that have sold millions of copies in the last couple of decades, it seems to me that that who we worship is a very vital question. Let me give you two examples. A while back, Pastor Rick Warren wrote a book whose opening line was this, it's not about you. That book sold over 32 million copies worldwide in about 85 languages. But a few years after that, another woman named Rhonda Byrne wrote a wildly popular book called The Secret. Some of you remember that book. Unlike Warren's book, The Secret said things like this. You are God in a physical body. You are spirit in the flesh. You are eternal life expressing itself as you. You are a cosmic being. You are all power. You are all wisdom. You are all intelligence. You are perfection. You are magnificence. You are the creator and you are creating the creation of you on this planet. The next sentence should have said, you are crazy. (laughs) But the book goes on to say stuff like this. The earth turns on its orbit for you. I know some of you ladies think you've met that brother, right? (laughs) Who thinks that. The earth turns on its orbit for you. The oceans ebb and flow for you. The birds sing for you. The sun rises and it sets for you. The stars come out for you. Every beautiful thing you see, every wondrous um, thing you experience is all there for you. Take a look around. None of it can exist without you. 
No matter who you thought you were, now you know the truth of who you really are. You are the master of the universe. I can't help but think of He-Man right there. You are the heir to the kingdom. You are the perfection of life. And now you know the secret. Do you buy that? A lot of people bought it for $14 on Amazon. 30 million people. 30 million copies worldwide translated into 50 languages. She was on Oprah twice. Now here's the question. What does it mean to celebrate Christmas when millions and millions of people believe that they are God and everything that exists is all there for them? They may never say that, of course, but the sense that they are the star of their own story and others are supporting actors and actresses to serve their dreams, well, that's, that's very much alive and well, isn't it? What does it mean to celebrate Christmas when worshipers worship themselves and become consumers of pleasure rather than offerers of praise? Where do you spend your time, your treasure, your energy, worshiping? That's what we want to consider when we come to Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. This is the third in a four-part series on the early life of Jesus. We have considered Matthew's argument so far. He's been arguing to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 17, Matthew gives us the genealogy of the Lord, proving that Jesus is in fact descended from Abraham and descended from David and is the promised Savior to all those who were in exile. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25 uh, is a discussion of the, the incarnation and the virgin birth of the Lord. Matthew argues that Jesus has come to save his people from their sins. And here now we come to Matthew's version or account of the, the birth of Christ, the, the aftermath of the birth of Christ, and he's still arguing to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. But, but in this text, what we'll see driven, uh, or, or what drives this text, is the question of worship and who we worship and how we come to worship accurately. If you're taking notes this morning, the main point might be put something like this. Very simply, worship God in truth. Worship God in truth. And I want to unpack the text in, in four points. So if you're taking notes, this is the outline for the sermon. Number one, we are motivated by worship. All of us. We are motivated by worship. Matthew 2 verses 1 and 2. Number two, we can, however, misplace our worship. We can misplace our worship. Number three, we must be guided in our worship. We must therefore be guided in our worship. And number four, we find our joy, our highest joy, in true worship. In true worship. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, 
Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, And they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Four points this morning. The first one is this. We are motivated by worship. Matthew chapter 2 opens in verse 1, after Jesus was born. He was in Bethlehem of Judea, according to verse 1. Matthew doesn't record the details of how they got there, but Luke does. When Mary and Joseph were betrothed and beginning to think about being married and have a family, they were actually living in in Nazareth of Galilee. But Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7 tells us that Caesar uh, passed a law requiring a census be taken, and everyone had to go back to their ancestral hometown. And so Joseph, with Mary, pregnant, they travel from Galilee back to Bethlehem. And so this is how they get to Bethlehem because of that edict that displaced them. We'll talk about the significance of this in a moment. Verse 1 also tells us this was in the days of Herod the king. This is Herod the Great or Herod the First, as historians call him. His father was an Edomite official who had a fair amount of connections with, with Caesar and powerful people in Roman government. It was his father who led them to convert to Judaism. So Herod, though an Edomite, was actually raised Jewish. We don't know if he really practiced Judaism, but but that was the, the family's religious claim. Herod comes to power because of Rome and because of his family connections with Rome, with Caesar and Mark Anthony. He doesn't come to power because he's a son of David. Comes to power through politics. It was the Roman Senate that declared him the king of Judea after Herod had conquered that region for Rome. He founds a dynasty that's known for architectural achievement and amassing power and wealth. 
and for oppressing the people. He's groomed for power. He's greedy for it. And it's while this King Herod reigns in Judea that wise men from the east come to town. We don't know exactly where they're from. Could be Mesopotamia uh, in Babylon. They simply show up out of nowhere. And notice that the text doesn't say it was three wise men. It says wise men. Could have been two. Could have been 200. We don't know. They come and they have a question. Verse 2. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And they don't mean Herod. Uh, I think they showed up with just a little bit of killmonger in them. Is this your king? (laughs) Where's the one who has been born king of the Jews? And the question is significant in the way that it's worded. But notice the motivation in verse 2, why they ask the question. What, What motivates them is worship. They say, for we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. It was a desire to worship that motivated them to cross deserts and foreign lands and cultures and religious divisions to see the king, to praise him. Human beings are motivated by worship. This is significant for several reasons. First, it's significant because it illustrates that that worship is, again, a a universal impulse. Have you ever noticed that some form of religion exists among all peoples on the globe? Everybody worships. The reason religion exists everywhere is because we are worshiping beings. Now, not all people worship Jesus. Not all people even worship a deity. But all people worship. We can't help it. It is a basic operating system downloaded on a hard drive of human nature. Well, notice secondly, though we're created to worship, we do not always know who or what we worship. That's not always apparent to us. We don't always know who or what motivates us or what we're aiming our worship at. In the wise men's case, they knew the king of the Jews had been born, but they didn't know who he was or where he was. They had a general sense of things, but not a specific sense of things. And for us today, we are sometimes motivated by functional idols that have not yet been identified. We have motives that work in our hearts that we have, we have yet to name, that we've yet to understand. That's why sometimes we do things we can't explain. That's why we sometimes feel compelled to do things or go places or be with people that we know we shouldn't. There may be things demanding our worship that we've not yet identified. Quiet, sneaky, functional idols. And a third significant thing about this is is this, that these are Gentiles looking for the Savior. These are not Jews looking for their Messiah. These are are folks from the East. These are folks from outside of Israel. These are folks from outside of Judaism who are now coming to find the Savior. So not only do all people worship, but in God's great kindness, he draws people from all nations to himself. 
It's interesting that Matthew begins his gospel by telling us, at least according to his account, that the first people to actively seek Jesus are Gentiles. Just as God had promised, just as God had prophesied that he would draw all nations to himself through his son. We're all motivated to worship, beloved. And so the question of what we worship or who we worship is always a vital question. But now the second thing we want to observe is we can misplace our worship. That's really Herod's problem. As I said before, Herod has become a a powerful ruler in the area. Uh, He's backed up by even more powerful people all the way up to the Caesars of Rome and the Senate of Rome. We, we know he loves his power because of the way he responds when the, when the wise men come and ask their question. Verse 3 tells us, notice there, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. It's not clear why all Jerusalem was troubled. Maybe it's that we have a way of getting accommodated to our oppression. And so any upsetting of the status quo troubles us. And here's the truth. Wherever Jesus shows up, he troubles things. He disrupts the status quo. So we don't know by, why all the people are troubled, but, but I think it's a reasonable guess that Herod is troubled or disturbed because he's concerned about his power. Go back to how the question is asked again in verse 2. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? That's an explosive way to frame the question. It means at least three things. It means, number one, born king, born king means that, that the, the, the right to the throne is his as a descendant or an heir. Now, this one who is born king doesn't become king through political alliances and, and favors. This one who is born king doesn't become king through power and might the way Caesar had. This is a birthright for him. This is a, a matter of legitimacy, and that's the, that's the second thing, right? Born king means that all other rulers now are under the cloud of illegitimacy. It's not their throne. It's not their crown. However powerful or however politically smooth. And thirdly, born king means the Messiah and the kingdom of God have come. So all other kingdoms now have to bow down, have to fall back. For the king of kings and the Lord of lords has come into the world. That's troubling for a ruler like Herod who wants to keep his power. But you know what? It's also troubling for a sinner like us who wants to run their own life. It's a troubling thing when Jesus comes near and we don't want to worship him. It's a disturbing thing when Christ announces his kingship and his lordship, but we have gotten used to ruling ourselves, to self-rule, to autonomy, to just doing us. Because Jesus didn't come to do us. He came to save us. And he came to rule us. And so Herod and all the people are troubled because of this fundamental problem of idolatry, of false worship. Herod idolizes his power. But an idol is anything we assign worth or value to, anything that we bow down to and love and serve. 
And here's how we know something's an idol in our life. We know when an idol has control or influence in our lives because whenever it is threatened, it threatens back. It says things like, you can't live without me. It says things like, if I'm not in your life, you're going to die. The idol, when attacked, attacks in return. That's why we can't stand to see our idols roughly handled or challenged, can we? They demand that we serve them by protecting them at all costs. I think that's why Herod's mad. His idol of power is fragile and it's rocking on its pedestal, about to fall and crash. He's misplaced his worship. He's assigned value and worth to the wrong thing. That's why Herod tries some more backroom politicking. Did you see that in verse 4? He assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people. He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Then in verse 7, he, he says, he summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. Notice now he got the answer back in verses 4 to 6, but he doesn't share it with the wise men. He's trying to get more information from them. What time, when did you see the star roughly? So I have a sense of how old this child might be now. He's trying to gather all the information because he thinks, as the world does, that information is power. He thinks that's how he maintains his power. He thinks that's how he can quietly launch a plan to preserve his power, to protect his idol. But look at the deceptive claim he makes in verse 8. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Let that sink in for a moment. Think think about what this man is saying right here. You've just been informed by wise men that the king of the Jews has been born. And you know that that's the Messiah. You give that away when you ask the the religious leaders in verse 4, where's the Christ to be born? So you know this is the promised Messiah that they are asking you about. Your religious leaders answer you and tell you, hey, the prophets have spoken. It's going to be in Bethlehem of Judea. Uh, That's where the Lord's shepherd, the Lord's ruler will come from. So you've got all the answers, even from the scriptures, but you ain't going to go find him yourself. You're going to send a delegation to go find him and then come back at some point and tell you where he is, and then you're going to go worship him. This man ain't real. This man ain't genuine. This man doesn't really want to know the Lord and to, to worship him. He's trying to phone it in. He's trying to delegate worship, Right? Beloved, the the worship and the praise of God can't be delegated, can't be phoned in. It's got to come from people who seek him in spirit and in truth, with genuine hearts, who don't praise God with their lips and their hearts are far from them, but who, who praise God, who worship God with all of their hearts, all of their strength, all of their mind, all of their soul. Genuine worship, like the 
wise men would cross a desert to worship Jesus. But phony worship won't leave the bedroom. That's why Bedside Baptist Church is so important and so, so popular. That's why people make all kinds of excuses for not gathering on the Lord's Day or, or, or suggesting some proxy. I got with my girlfriends or I got with my homies this weekend and we read our daily bread and, and so I've been worshiping. Beware the sugar substitutes for worship. They may be revealing a functional idol. I'm going to put it this way. If we can't be bothered to seek God while he may be found, then we can't be surprised if we never find God, though he's everywhere all the time. It's not the half-hearted worshiper who enjoys Christ most. It's not the one who tries to worship Christ from a distance who really delights in him. It's the one who will leave their country and come to him and offer themselves to him who find the most satisfaction in him. That's what worship is. Here's the thing. We'll either worship God or we'll worship something or someone else because we're made to be worshipers. We'll either assign, assign the highest value and worth to God and be so motivated by that assignment or we'll assign that value to someone or something else and be motivated to move toward them. But we, we won't do both. We'll worship God or mammon, but not both. I love the way theologian Greg Beale puts this in his wonderful book, We Become What We Worship. He, su he summarizes the book this way. What people revere, they resemble, either for ruin or for restoration. What people revere, it's a fancy word for love and honor and respect. What people revere, they resemble. We begin to look like the thing that we honor the most. And that will either be for our ruin or restoration. It will either be for our destruction or our delight. In other words, this means our worship results in something, beloved. It results either in ruin, which is a way of talking about judgment, because we have worshipped things that are not God's, or it will result in our restoration. Because in coming to God and beholding God, we start to look like God. We start to resemble God. We start to be transformed into the likeness and image of God, to be renewed in that image and likeness. That's what makes a book like The Secret so dangerous, beloved. Basically, what it does is justify self-worship. It puts us at the center of the universe in an, in an act and an attitude of God replacement. And beloved, anytime we're replacing God in our lives, that can only come to ruin. That can only come to destruction. Our worship is only worth something if we have the right object of worship. And if Jesus is the object of our worship, we are, by degree, day by day, becoming more like him. What we revere, we resemble. Here's how the, the Bible puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. 
we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That's what's happening to the Christian who worships Jesus. We're beholding his face, unveiled. We're seeing his glory revealed. Not like Moses on the mountain who had to wear a veil to hide the glory of God from Israel. That veil has been removed in Christ. We are now beholding the very face of Christ. And that visage is bringing to pass a vision. We are being transformed into his likeness as we behold his glory. What you behold in worship, you become through worship. What we revere, we resemble. The wise men in Matthew 2 teach us to revere the true king of the Jews, who's also the king of the universe. Herod teaches us that if we revere ourselves, it will come to our ruin. So here's the question. Who are you seeking? Who are you revering? What will you do when you, when you find the good news about Jesus? Will you give up all? Will you forsake all? And will you pursue him in repentance and faith? Or will you try to do like a lot of religious folks and dial it in? Don't take all that. Come to church once or twice a month. Listen to praise and worship on Sunday morning. And I'm good. Now, there are a lot of ways to be Herod. There are a lot of ways to fake it. But you won't make it if you fake it. So, will we worship the one true king? Is the question, which brings us to our third comment here then. We must be guided then in our worship. If it's true that we all worship, and if it's true that we can misplace our worship, that means then we're going to need some guidance from outside of ourselves. We're going to need some pointers to what's really true, what's really real, and how it is that we should worship God. In recording this part of Jesus' life, notice that Matthew points out two things that were guiding the magi, the the wise men who were genuinely looking to worship Christ. The first thing there are the supernatural signs. You see, that's that's a star in verse 3. There's something about that star. It's not like other stars. First of all, it's called his star. There's an unusual connection between this star and Jesus. But secondly, the star behaves in some unusual ways. Notice there, this star rose. Stars don't normally rise. They hang right there where God put them. But this star rose. And not only did it rise, but look now in verses 9 and 10, this star moved. Verse 9 says, it went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. That's amazing. That's miraculous. And because the wise men had faith to receive the guidance that they were getting, even in nature, even in the supernatural, the star became a guide that led them to worship. 
But it's not all down to the star. Notice now there's a second source of guidance here as what you might call the written signs, the, the scriptures, the, the Bible. When Herod asked where the child was to be born and he assembled the priests and the scribes, they didn't make up an answer. They didn't have a debate between themselves. They didn't just start philosophizing. No, they read the Bible. They referred in verses 5 and 6 to the prophet, meaning Micah, the text that we read earlier this morning in the service, Micah chapter 5. It was the scripture that became a, a sure guide to finding Jesus and worshiping Jesus. Listen, we can have amazing supernatural experiences like the wise men, but I want you to notice something. That supernatural experience did not quite get them to Jesus. It got them in the vicinity. It got them in the area. But beloved, from God's perspective, worship is not like horseshoes and hand grenades. It's not something you just sort of get close with. God expects us to actually worship him, as I've said before, in spirit and in truth. He expects a certain kind of accuracy in our worship of him. Lest we falsify our worship. Romans chapter 1 says we can know some true and profound things about God simply by looking at the creation. Here's the tragic truth, though. That nature and the creation tell us just enough about God to condemn us all to hell. It, it leaves us without an excuse because we should be able to look at birds and look at trees and look at fish and, and look at our own beating hearts. Uh, we should be able to see those things and know there's a God who made that. But that's not enough to know who that God is who made that. For that, we need special revelation. For that, we need the Bible. For that, we need the, the scripture to know Jesus and to be saved. We need, thus saith the Lord. We need the Bible. To worship God properly, we need the Bible. Because in the Bible is where we get to know the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I love those testimonies of people who've come to faith in Christ. And their testimonies kind of begin something like this. Maybe they were going through some tragedy or maybe they were struggling in some way and uh, they realized that they, they didn't believe in God, at least at that point. And in their testimony, they say something like this, God, if you're there, prove it. God, if you're real, prove it. Now, those testimonies invariably include two elements, something that feels natural or supernatural where they begin to sense and to think differently about the reality of the existence of God. But invariably, if they are Christians, it also includes some experience where they come into contact with the Bible and they come into contact with other Christians who explain the gospel to them from the Bible. God is so kind, he's not going to leave us with vague notions of who he is. He's so kind that he's going to tell us specifically who he is and how to know him and how to worship him in the gospel of his son. God is there. He is not silent. He has spoken in creation, but he speaks in his word most clearly.
And if we're going to worship him properly, we're going to at some point have to immerse ourselves in God's word rather than our own thinking. Look how specific it is in verse 5. How specific the word is in leading us to the truth. Herod has assembled his religious leaders and asked him the question, where's the Christ to be born? Verse 5, they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Well, that's some Easter egg right there. Going to Bethlehem was no accident. It was not a historical fluke. It was not merely a, another displacement of poor people by the, the sort of uh, political decisions of powerful rulers. It, it was the sovereign working of God getting his son into the birthplace that he had promised centuries before. It's another line on Jesus' fingerprint. For even if there were other people who were descended from David, Surely the universe of people born in Bethlehem was infinitely smaller. It's another plank in the argument that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, and another encouragement to God's people that he was not going to leave them alone forever, but that they would have a shepherd, a ruler who would deliver them, not primarily from Rome, though he is powerful enough to do that, but to deliver them from God, from God's judgment, from God's wrath, from the hell that's prepared for Satan and his angels, but to which too many people go because they do not worship this Jesus. That this ruler would shepherd his people away from that destruction and shepherd his people into God's love, into God's forgiveness, into God's welcome in his kingdom. He would, as the good shepherd of Isaiah 43, carry us close to his heart until he delivered us to the Father's hand. This is the baby that we celebrate who grew up to be king of kings and lord of lords, who grew up to give his life as a ransom for us, to die in our place on the cross and to be raised from the grave three days later so that we too might have eternal life in him and we too might have his righteousness through faith in his sacrifice. You want to worship God? You hear and you're not yet a Christian? Understand it, the Bible says no one comes to God except through his son. There is no worship that he accepts except the worship that's offered through Jesus and in the name of Jesus. But if you come to Jesus, then you get the whole Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. You get the entirety of his kingdom. You get all of his love. You get all of his greatness and majesty. And as you revere him, you begin to resemble him. You begin to look like him and to live like him. And notice then what the result of that is. You find your true joy in the worship of him. 
Look at verses 10 and 11 of Matthew chapter 2. They leave Herod's place, that little secret parlay. Verse 10, or verse 9, excuse me, after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense, and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. <laughs> when we are motivated by worship, and, and when we place our worship in the right object, the right person, Jesus Christ, and when our worship is guided by God through his word, then our worship results in our joy. Notice the reaction of the wise men again in verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. It's like Matthew is running out of adjectives. He's trying to say joy every way he can. Rejoice exceedingly great joy. That, that was the reaction to sort of find the one for whom their hearts were longing, to find the one who, who, who drove and motivated them to worship. When you think about the Gospels, and the birth of Christ, everyone who encounters him has basically the same reaction. Let me give you some verses. You can look them up later this afternoon. But Luke chapter 1, verses 39 to 44. Mary goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, who's pregnant with John the Baptist. And do you remember what happens when Mary walks into the house and Elizabeth sees her? Mary, Mary explains in, in great honor or shock, a kind of worship of her own, how is it that the mother of my Lord has come to me? And she says, when you walked in the house, the baby in my womb jumped for joy. Even from the womb, those who encountered the baby Jesus, who was in the womb of Mary, rejoiced. Or Luke chapter 2, verses 25 to 32. That old man Simeon, who's in the temple, waiting for the consolation of Israel, finally sees the baby Jesus and says something like this, now, Lord, I can die. You have let me see the comforter, the consolation of Israel. In that same chapter, Luke chapter 2, verses 36 to 38, remember the 84-year-old prophetess, Anna, who never leaves the temple She's always in the temple fasting and praying and the Holy Spirit is upon her. What joy she rejoices with when she sees Jesus brought to the temple to be dedicated to the Lord. Joy is the natural reaction of everyone who finds Jesus in faith. It is the natural reaction of everyone who genuinely worships Christ as Lord. Now, I'm not saying we don't have struggles with joy. I'm not saying that our joy doesn't go up and down. I'm not saying depression isn't a real thing for Christians. All those things are true. But, beloved, when we get to sit and see Jesus, the eruption is gladness. It's joy. That's why the favorite hymns of Christmas often are hymns that meditate on joy. 
joy to the world. The Lord has come. Now, we ought to be ashamed of ourselves when we sing that song like, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let her receive her king. Let every heart. No. When the angels show up at Jesus' birth to the shepherds, they announce joy. And the angels form this heavenly choir that, that sings praises in joy. And the biblical picture of worship in books like Hebrews is that we have joined the angels in coming to Christ in singing of his glory. We ought to do so with joy. Saturday night, before you are going to bed and as you're preparing to wake up Sunday morning, let me encourage you to make part of your prayer to conclude Saturday, Lord, ready me for joy. Excite me with joy. When I wake tomorrow, let me be refreshed, let me be focused so that when I sing, I sing with joy and so that together we experience the joy of the Lord. So we sing it with zeal and we sing it with understanding, thinking about the lyrics. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. We are announcing the gospel there. We are announcing the good news there. Jesus has come. The, the world has received the Savior. The Son who is given unto us is actually in our possession. We are rescued from sin. We are rescued from hell. We are rescued from judgment. We are rescued from this fallen ball of clay and saved for a glorious eternity with Christ. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let her receive her king. And not only do we now express joy, but remember what worship is. It is the assignment of worth to Christ. What do the wise men do? They bow down and worship, and they give their gifts. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. The tradition tries to think about what those things symbolize. Gold for his, king, uh, his kingship, frankincense for his priesthood, myrrh uh, as something used to prepare for burial. So some people see symbolic representation of Jesus' prophet, priest, and king and the sacrifice who takes away the sins of the world. The text doesn't actually say that. But what is clear is that they are ascribing to Jesus worth. They are giving inferior treasures to the greater treasure. They are laying down their gold. They are laying down their frankincense. They are laying down their myrrh. They are laying down all that the world esteems as valuable in order to say that the one who is not from this world is infinitely more valuable. They worship him. They delight in him. They bow down to him. This is what we mean when we say he is worthy. He's worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our adoration. He's worthy of us and all that we have. And when we give ourselves up to Christ this way, 
And when Christ frees us from the possession of possessions so that we declare his value above all that we have, we declare his value with all that we have, we find our truest joy. Let me put it to you this way. Your stuff won't make you happy. It won't make you lastingly happy. It won't give you spiritual joy. Your stuff will choke you to death. Or it will make you worship it. And so when we give, we are are thereby rebelling against the idols in our culture and in our own hearts in order to declare that Jesus alone is Lord and Jesus alone is worthy. Once heard a pastor say, and you maybe heard me say it a couple times, when you find a good line as a preacher, you steal it and you use it. Once heard a pastor say that God commands us to give, not so he can get money out of our wallets, but so that he can get idols out of our hearts. I think that's right. The worshipers here are not back in Jerusalem plotting about how to keep their idol of power. The worshipers here abowed before the young Jesus, casting down all of their treasures because he's the pearl of great price. He's the true treasure. And when you have him, you have joy. I pray that this Christmas, Christ would be our joy, truly and deeply. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, let the earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. Oh, Lord, we pray, repeat the sounding joy. Cause our hearts to reverberate in joy. Cause our mouths to open wide with joy, to proclaim the excellencies of Christ and to make him known far as the curse is found. For he has come into the world to rescue sinners. And he has accomplished that rescue in his cross. And he is resurrected and ruling and coming again. And he breaks the hold of every power on his people. So free us, O Lord, to worship you, we pray in Jesus' name.